Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to the rest of you. We are back for another episode of Bitcoin Magazine Live. It is I, your host, Q, coming to you from my mother's basement. I'm joined by my co-host, P, and we're joined by special guest today, college senior and market analyst, Joe Consorti. Joe, how are you doing, man? Doing well. That's, uh, I, I love that introduction. Uh, I love the college senior part first. Very, very true. Uh, but yeah, excited to be here with you guys. And you deserve a lot of credit for taking some time off from studying for your finals to come join us and, and share your wisdom with us. Um, but talk to us before we dive into everything, just how are you feeling with where Bitcoin's price is at, what you're seeing in a macro landscape? Where's your, where's your sort of feelings at right now? For sure. Yeah. So I'll echo a lot of what Dr. Jeff Ross has said, um, you know, when I explain this, but ultimately you're seeing the you're seeing the side effects of a 13-year regime of a lot of cheap debt uh, in the system. When there is this crazy amount of access to capital, companies don't have to invest it in profitable projects, right? Because they have a negative cost of capital. They have a negative required return on their projects. And so they just take this easy money. Um, and you know, this is what enables jobs that don't actually provide you know, positive economic value, right? Um, the, the incomes from productivity gains of invested debt don't need to exceed the debt servicing levels because guess what? The debt servicing levels have been at or near zero. And so you're seeing what happens when uh, the Federal Reserve in an effort to fight inflation, uh, they're raising uh, you know, the federal funds rate, which is the interbank borrowing rate. Um, and you're seeing the market puke, right? 15% in the last 100 days uh, as a result of uh, 75 basis points or 0.75% debt servicing costs. So what does that tell you? The majority of the system is propped up on this cheap, 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 easy access to capital, um, and, and Bitcoin follows right along with it. So I think you know Bitcoin is largely following what the market is doing because um, because in the short term uh, it's it's acting as this uh, vehicle that's short volatility, right? As liquidity is is drawn from the market, liquidity is also drawn from Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is this twenty four seven. 365 uh, vehicle where if people get you know margin called or they need to cover their losses in other markets uh, they can liquidate their Bitcoin uh, and you know obviously this is something that's going to diminish over time Bitcoin won't have this this huge sensitivity to major market moves um, as it becomes a larger and larger asset right as the liquidity in Bitcoin deepens as market cap goes from one trillion to ten trillion to hundred trillion, there won't be as much correlation to you know overall market liquidity conditions. So right now, Bitcoin's taking some heat um, as some of that bad debt gets purged from the system. Um, but if anything, awesome stacking opportunity uh, for me. I, I know for a fact that I've up my DCAs and I've set some limit orders down uh, to you know 25, 20k. So excited for it. Love that. And uh, honestly, Loki kind of hope your limit orders never get hit. But that's just personal thesis needing to play out for sake of my own sanity. You bring up the Fed. Last week, they announced a 50 basis point hike. We now get a new CPI numbers where to what you bring up earlier and Dr. Jeff Ross's entire thesis earlier this week was that we're going to start seeing a slowdown of these inflation numbers. Where is your head at? I mean, there's an argument to be made that these inflation numbers only look slowed down because they literally changed the formula and adjust to the uh, coefficient before the variable for cars in this formula for this most recent CPI. So do we buy it? How are you feeling on the heels of a 50 basis point hike to see this uh, inflation rate coming down? For sure. So 
I find it funny that of course they of course they change the formula. I mean that's the name of the game. Central banking is all about cheating and manipulating the numbers. Uh, I actually didn't catch the CPI print live. I, I slept in this morning. I wanted to get uh, my my beauty rest. Um, but also I drank I drank one of these Bang Energies way too late last night. Um, and then of course you, you don't go to bed until uh, later in the evening. But um, you know uh, inflation slowing down. Um, whether or not that has to do with uh, the calculation uh, is debatable. But um, I find it just indicative. Uh, it's 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 a sign of the times that um, you know this this baby this baby hike this this very minor hawkishness from the Fed is is causing inflation to slow down. You know, as of right now, you know much of the inflation we're seeing is structural, right? You're basically, restricting the access to capital um, is cutting off cutting off access to debt capital for firms that they need in order to alleviate these supply issues, right? Um, if your inflation is caused by, which it is, uh, it, it's sort of lagging behind two years of shutting down or restricting global supply chains, um, then you're not gonna do any help by cutting off demand, right? Uh, your, your inflation is gonna stay largely the same. It might go down a little bit, um, but ultimately like all you're doing uh, is cutting off access to capital through businesses uh, that, that need that capital in order to alleviate this inflation, right? Um, so, you know, ultimately what you're going to see, um, as the fed continues to tighten, right. Through raising rates and, and, and slowing QE, which by the way, they haven't even done yet. They haven't even done. We're still in buy, you know, the, the central bank is still buying trillions of financial assets every single month, injecting this easy liquidity into the economy. Um, is your, you're going to continue to see what we've been seeing, um, which is this, you know, system-wide deleveraging where bad debt assets from borrowers who can't finance their debt. Um, they get eliminated, but also the lender's debt assets also get eliminated. Um, that's why you're seeing, uh, you know, volatility go up. That uncertainty is driven by liquidity literally getting vaporized from existence, right? These debt assets from lenders are getting vaporized from existence. Um, and so sure, in the short term, they're fighting price inflation, right? You know, um, but uh, as it stands, um, they're also contributing greatly to uh, these global supply issues, right? And so ultimately, the, the solution to this um, will be to, you know, cease all talk of hawkishness, turn the printers back on, um, and uh, essentially print money into infinity. All right, before we dive into the PowerPoint slides, and Chris, I think we're going to start with slide number two. Uh, Joe, you very clearly have not been watching this show, because I think ever since the Bitcoin conference, I've actually specifically called you out for drinking your nasty ass monster energy drinks and like thinking you're being healthy with your no seed oil diet. And then let me poison myself with bang energy. So you're a jackass. Stop drinking this shitty energy drinks. That's totally uh, valid. That is totally valid. Yeah, Joe, I mean, I think you're just going to go straight to health and gasoline. I feel like that's, if you really want to rush, keep you focused. I can't. I can't afford like the down the street. The gas is four fifty five a gallon. I know it's worse in uh, in California, but in Vermont, it's uh, it's pretty bad too. So uh, you know, this, uh, yeah, the, these things are terrible for you. For everybody watching, don't drink these. Um, I'm a, I'm a black coffee enjoyer more traditionally, but uh, for some odd reason, I decided to uh, to drink this three hundred milligram caffeine drink. Anyways, I want to start with the federal fund rate, that slide, because we're kind of talking about these issues with interest rates and just sort of the Fed's actions. Can you walk us through a little bit of what you're, what we're seeing here with the movement of expensive credit first? Yes. 
So uh, back in 2008, you know, from 2004, roughly speaking, uh, the, the act, basically the, the federal funds rate more broadly, what I'll call it is it's the interbank lending rate. So the rate at which banks can borrow and lend to and from one another um, overnight, right? And so this dictates other short rates in the economy, right? So the rates that individuals and businesses can borrow at. So I've made it a lot easier here. Um, I've basically just put labels on this slide. So you've got expensive credit and then less expensive credit and then even cheaper credit. So starting all the way over uh, at the right in 2008, um, basically what you saw was that when access to capital was sitting at four and a half percent annualized, you started to see the S&P 500 take a pretty precipitous hit. Um, and obviously some of this had to do um, with you know, the, the huge leverage unwind in the, the subprime market, uh, which only lasted from 2000 to 2007. Um, actually in that time, the total amount of, uh, of, of corporate debt doubled uh, as well. So uh, basically moving into 2007 from 2000, when the tech bubble burst, the total amount of corporate debt doubled. Meanwhile, uh, the financing cost was at four and a half percent. Uh, and you saw the S&P start to sell off because companies could no longer finance at that level, right? Um, people couldn't purchase financial assets. They couldn't buy the S&P 500 at that level. Uh, and the companies that were within the S&P 500, um, you know, weren't able to finance uh, their debt at that level. And so you saw the Fed start to decrease rates. But unlike in 2020, they did it very slowly, right? You know, they, they basically did a small rate decrease and then said, well, you know, the market should stabilize at this level. And then it didn't uh, because what you saw was this massive purge of bad debt from the system. Uh, I keep saying this, I keep sounding like a broken record, um, but ultimately this is the same exact dynamic you see going on. Um, you know, Their gains from investment with that easy capital were non-existent, right? Um, you know, unproductive capital allocation because if their gains from that investment weren't exceeding four and a half percent, you know, they had to get their debt restructured. And as a result of that, their, you know, the, the, their lenders, right, you know, the people who bought these mortgage-backed securities, uh, you know, their assets got completely vaporized from existence. Um, and so over the course of 511 days, um, you saw, you know, the S&P drop 56%, right? So no bueno, um, especially companies that are largely debt financed got really hurt. So that's what you saw. That is the first time the Federal Reserve uh, set rates at zero, right? So set short rates at zero. Um, and then moving from 2009 all the way to 2016, right? So you had a seven-year regime of low or no cost access to capital. What does this mean for companies? Well, I'll paint the picture. If you went into a bank and they were just essentially handing you an uncollateralized line of credit, you didn't have to put up any money and you could get it for near zero cost, what would you do? Would you go out and use it productively to get gains uh, you know, uh, uh, to, to your productivity and actually produce income? Or would you go buy a motorcycle, right? You know, would you go spend it unproductively? Um, and so what you saw was this really easy access to cr credit uh, allowed companies to borrow at a near zero cost. And so they essentially pursued projects that wouldn't have otherwise been profitable in any other environment. And so you saw this secular uptrend in the S&P 500, right? You know, this is, I guess, the beginning of the everything bubble. Um, and in 2008, the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, noticed that inflation was running hot. Um, they noticed that uh, you know, they, they had to slow price inflation. And so what did they do? They started raising interest rates again. They start restricting that asset uh, access to capital. Um, and, and what happened? Well, you saw crazy volatility um, in 2017, 2018, 2019. Um, you know, and so the Fed pivoted, right? They went from monetary tightening to monetary easing. 
Okay. Uh, as opposed to trying to fight this inflation, they said, okay, we're hurting businesses a little bit. Uh, you know, we're, you know, these drawdowns aren't healthy for the economy. We're going to start to lower interest rates slowly. Right. Um, and so at this point in time, the economy is incredibly sensitive because of the amount of debt in the system and the rising cost to service that debt. And then incredible timing, March 12, 2020, uh, COVID-19, right? Huge contagion sweeps across markets. Um, basically, you know, there's, there's tremendous amount of uncertainty in the system. People rush to extract their money. Um, and so, you know, liquidity gets absolutely destroyed. And you saw in just 35 days, uh, you saw the S&P 500 take a 33% nosedive, right? And so in response to this, the Fed broke out the exact same playbook from 2009, uh, and they completely eased access to capital, but this time they did it overnight, right? They did it very quickly um, so as to get the economy started again. Um, the way that I analogize, you know, lowering interest rates, it should be like jumpstarting a vehicle. It should be like jumpstarting a dead battery. It shouldn't be the fuel for your vehicle. You don't drive down the road connected to somebody else's battery, and that's how you run your car. And that's how the economy has been running for the last 13 years. The economy has been propped up, not on gains to productivity, right? This, this increase in the price of these financial assets has been partially to increase in productivity, but mostly, right, from cheap credit. And now what you're seeing, I wrote even cheaper credit in all caps uh, in the bottom here. What you're seeing is over the last 133 days, right? So basically since the start of the year, uh, since December, um, the S&P 500 take, uh, has taken a 17% nosedive in response to the Fed being hawkish and saying that they're gonna fight inflation by raising uh, the, the, the cost of borrowing, right? To 75 basis points, right? And what this shows you um, is that when the access to capital is restricted by 0.75%, right? You have a 0.75 price tag on the debt that you took out uh, and the economy takes a nosedive like this, uh, it tells you not only how leveraged we are, right? That's a given, but how much of it was on that zero or near 0% debt. Um, and so as a result of this, um, you're really seeing financial assets take a tumble. And so in my opinion, because of this, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of it is, is structural, not a lot of it's you know, based on the demand side. Um, I feel like the Fed is going to have to pivot very, very soon, um, you know, otherwise uh, risk this being global, right? You know, because this, this credit risk uh, isn't just in the United States, right? Raising, raising access to capital, i.e. restricting the amount of dollars in existence, make for a stronger dollar, makes it harder for emerging markets to service their dollar denominated debts. So they have to print their fiat currency um, and it, uh, it leads to a, a global recession. And so in order to stave that off, I think the Fed's gonna have to pivot. When that happens, who knows? I also really, I wanna now switch over to slide one for the VIX because I think that is helping to paint a picture of when or how we can set expectations for this Fed pivot. Uh, one thing really interesting that I think you did here and I just wanna have it up, the period where you highlighted right before 2009, like the 2008 window, which is highlighted on the VIX chart. And then you've highlighted the most recent sort of VIX movement of higher highs, higher lows, and just this like steady movement while the market itself during both of those periods was in a downturn. Um, I'm curious what what you're seeing, what you're paying attention to with the VIX as it goes to the public markets first. For sure. So 
the VIX you can think about for everybody on the on the, the live stream and might not understand what it is. Um, it's essentially a measure of implied volatility, right? Um, which is, you can think of it more broadly as uncertainty in the markets. Um, and when there's wide sweeping uncertainty, liquidity deteriorates, people draw their money from the markets. That's the most broad, uh, simplistic way that I can describe it. And so moving into 2009, we talked about a minute ago how credit was at that relatively expensive level. And because of that, liquidity gets drawn from the market. Well, the way that I like to describe what was happening with those higher highs and higher lows in VIX in 2009 and the current dynamic we're seeing is uncertainty is, uh, it's like hiccuping, right? It's hiccuping back and forth as the Fed at one point is saying, well, we're going to go for a soft-ish landing, or they, they said soft, and then they said soft-ish, which implies that they might pivot back to dovishness. Um, and so you see basically market levels of uncertainty just hiccuping back and forth um, until something breaks, right? Um, and in the case of 2009, right, that was, you know, mortgage-backed securities, which, which triggered this huge deleveraging event uh, economy-wide, which is why you saw the VIX spike there. Uh, and the dynamic we're seeing now is playing out near exactly the way that we're seeing it in, we saw it in 2008. Uh, uncertainty is sort of hiccuping back and forth as liquidity is being drawn from the system, right? Um, you know, which of course, less deep liquidity means more volatility. Um, and so ultimately, uh, something is, something has got to give here, right? Something has got to give, uh, or the Fed has to pivot, uh, before things get really bad, right? Um, and ultimately, you know, in, in the short term, Bitcoin is highly correlated to, to things like the VIX, right? It, it's sort of short volatility in the short term because investors are treating it like assets, like the S&P 500, right? They're treating it like assets like this. Um, but ultimately, you know, everybody who's on this live stream knows, uh, that Bitcoin represents absolute scarcity, right? Bitcoin represents this vehicle that you could park your cash into uh, and sit, right? Um, you know, whereas something like the S&P 500 uh, is, is speculative, you get in there to get a return. Bitcoin is this, this apex savings vehicle. So um, in the near term, um, you know, I, I, I noticed this trend, I threw it up. Uh, chances are we're going to see VIX blow up. Um, and as I mentioned, Bitcoin is trading inverse VIX. So uh, definitely, I would have some dirty fiat on hand to, to stack uh, when that opportunity does come. Um, but then ultimately afterward, the, the Fed's going to be forced to pivot, right? Not just for the sake of our own financial markets, um, but for the sake of the, the you know, emerging markets globally that have a lot of dollar-denominated debt, right? We act as a reserve currency. It'd be deeply irresponsible to, you know, to, to tighten in an environment like this. What are your thoughts right now before we dive all into how this relates back to Bitcoin? Do you think Jerome Powell knows what the hell he's doing? No, I think he has no fucking clue. I mean, I think he understands that the party has to keep going. The music can never stop. And I think that, you know, as we spoke about yesterday, um, it's all about the incentives, right? Um, each of the people that are in these positions are very, very heavily incentivized, not only from a larger, broader economic perspective, right? Like who wants to have on their hands the collapse of the American economy? But also just from a structural perspective in the sense that, you know, these terms are limited, right? You, nobody is held accountable for decisions that they made five years ago, three years ago, whatever it is. I don't know. What, what is the, um, how long is a term uh, for Jerome Powell? Uh, one year. One year? One year, yeah. So like nobody is going to come back to him or very few people are going to come back to him three years from now and be like, bro, four years, it's four years. Okay. Nobody's going to come back from five years from now and basically say like, what did you do? Like you fucked this thing up. They're going to 
they're only going to focus on the current person. And so everyone is very, very heavily incentivized to keep the party going while they are in power because it affects their prospects going forward. And uh, I think that kind of explains and helps us understand the decisions that are going to be made going forward. Very well said. Before we get into this, like you guys have heard Greg Foss's rant about Jerome Powell's just a lawyer, like all of this. Do do you guys understand how like he is so not qualified to not even let alone run essentially the global finance market by being the Fed chairman, but like even have a say in it, like he is so not qualified. It's bamboozling to say the least, but the dude has just been like a lawyer who worked on mergers and acquisitions and then like his boss got a job with the government and hired him and he's just been a government lawyer. It's crazy. It's absolutely mind boggling that like, just because he knew the right person and was in the right place, they deemed him qualified. And yet he has no financial wherewithal background or understanding. He's never proven himself in a financial market to say the least. Yeah. So I think, you know, when it comes to central banking as a whole, you see cantillionaires increasingly have uh, a foot in the door. And when you have connections, that's ultimately how you get a job. You don't get a job based off your own merit or qualifications. You get a job because you know the right people. And then, you know, as the, the reach of the cantillionaires, right, the people who have, uh, you know, direct connection to these, these money changers increases, then the quality of their performance and jobs that they're not qualified for decreases, right? It gets worse over time. Uh, you see that not only in, in jobs, right? You see people, you know, working extremely unproductively and they can still do it because it's cheap debt financing. Um, but also you see it in architecture too, right? Fiat, you know, it, it, at this point, it should be synonymous with societal decay because if you go out and look at architecture now, um, it's, you know, homes in, you know, not to dunk on the great state of California, um, but, you know, homes that, cause I was, I, I was actually born. Watch in yourself counselor. I'll be, I'll be, I'll be here. I'll, I'll, I'll choose my wording very wisely here. I, I have a connection in California. I, I actually grew up in California for a brief time, but anyway, um, homes that are selling for one and a half million, two million, three million dollars, right. Are like boxes. They're one story boxes, right. Uh, as opposed to these beautiful, you know, not to shill New England, right? Now I'm getting deep into it here. Um, but these beautiful, uh, you know, uh, two-story colonial homes with spires and, you know, libraries that are a fraction of a fraction of the cost, right? And so, um, you know, as fiat continues to proliferate and these cantillionaires have a stronger uh, hold on the system, the quality of life all around us, right? The architecture, the food, the, the Federal Reserve chairman uh, gets worse. Yeah, I completely agree. And just to be clear, I did grow up in California. There was a period where it was amazing, but it is a trash fire, a dumpster fire, an unmitigated disaster at this point. And uh, I moved away relatively recently and I've never been happier. I sleep better. Um, my, I have the bags under my eyes have gone away. Um, I've, actually, I've actually aged in reverse. I'm a younger man now. And all of that has to do with moving away from California. So Filled up my dad's Suburban, which was only a, like half half a tank. It wasn't like empty. It was just half a tank. Cost me over 90 bucks. Yeah. Yeah, we were talking and about- I went to gas. Costco. Mm-hmm. We were talking about it earlier. And what, 
what you left out was that for every gallon of gas you put into your car, the attendant comes out and just kicks you in the crotch in California. That's how that works. It's just part of the, it's it's one of the, uh, the sort of hidden taxes that you have to uh, sustain when you're getting gas in California. That's Not a lot of people know that. Entity, I have to say. I'm just, I'm flabbergasted. Chris, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think all of this plays an impact on the, the price of inflation, and yet we didn't see it this go around. Um, like gas prices are still about $5 a gallon here in California. Like the cheapest was 509 at Costco. Like that's the cheapest. And it's pretty consistently over $6. I don't see that ending anytime soon. So why then are we seeing numbers like the inflation CPI number come in and actually go down month, not month over month, but like last month's reading versus this month's reading? Yeah, I know for me, like gas, uh, I'm not going to dox where I live, but it, it went up to four bucks. And then for the last couple of months, we've been slightly below $4, just barely like 380, 390. But now it's starting to spike up again. We're well over four bucks. We're like 410, 419 over the last couple of days. So, uh, you know, that's inflation continuing to run rampant. I think, um, I guess I'll tie that into inflation. Like we talk about how inflation's coming down because it was at 8.5 a couple months ago. It's now 8.3, which is their CPI basket of goods that we've mentioned on the show countless times. It's basically just they make up the numbers and they try and make it work to make it look good. But just because inflation is coming down or, or stalling at around the same price doesn't mean that um, it's slowing down, but that doesn't mean that it's still not there in the sense that like you know, it's like, oh, well, gas is no longer going up, which is not true for me. But let's just say gas will stay the same. It still went up over the course of the year and it's at that new high price. So it's like, you know, have to bake that into your calculations. It's not like, oh, inflation is now zero. And now we're going back down to the lower prices. We're staying at these elevated levels, whether we like it or not. So, yeah, I mean, I think another thing is that to repeat what you and Joan Q have said, even just on this call, it's in order to understand what's going on, you have to understand the, the incentive structures. The CPI is a manufactured mechanic that is designed to help the Fed and everyone else uh, manage the perceptions of the broader market. But it is not an accurate measure. It, is never, it was never designed to be an accurate measure of, the, of inflation. It's total horseshit. So whatever the CPI, the printed numbers are, you have to you know, factor in. It's In my opinion, it's uh, you know, at least one third, uh, and probably closer to two thirds higher than that, at least. Um, Joe, I love your thoughts just broadly on how this new CPI number, while I think all of us on this call agree, like is fabricated, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes, but can help shape the messaging for what the Fed is going to say and do. What maybe are some of your expectations coming out of this? For sure. So I feel that ultimately inflation compounds. Okay. So when Greg Foss says this uh, very, very often, love the guy. I actually made a graphic of it a while back. Um, with Bitcoin's inflation rate, it's, it's disinflationary. It's decreasing into infinity, right? Like this. Um, but with CPI, right, the United States dollar inflation, if you measure with M2, it's more accurate, but from a CPI standpoint, um, it's increasing into infinity, right? So it increases, then it slows, then it increases, then it slows. And so ultimately, the Fed has to, they have to manage people's perceptions because the reality is that prices are never going down. They're just not going up temporarily. They're not going up as quickly temporarily. 
Um, and so it, it shows you how fickle central banking is when they have to play these, these mind games in order for people to, to believe them. Um, I ultimately think that as prices continue to go up, um, as the Fed becomes you know, more and more irresponsible, because they have to be, they, they have to stimulate demand, they have to print the new infinity, um, people are going to be looking for a vehicle where their wealth is safe, right? Disenchanted lenders who have their debt assets wiped out are going to be looking at Bitcoin and saying, I'm going to park my money here and hold it in cold storage, right? Because it can't get lent out. I'm minimizing counterparty risk because I'm holding it, right? Myself. And that's ultimately what Bitcoin is, right? Your asset is not somebody else's liability. So I think, yeah, the, the, the Fed in terms of managing expectations, they're going to take this 0.2 decrease and they're going to sprint with it. They're going to say, look at us, we're doing well. Um, Joey B is going to get up there before midterms and say, look at me, I'm slowing inflation. You know, inflation is down, woohoo. Um, and I'm, I'm very apolitical since uh, I, I got into Bitcoin, but ultimately they have to play those mind games. Um, ultimately, they're playing the wrong game here um, when it comes to uh, raising rates to fight inflation, because th they can say all day long that uh, a 0.2 decrease in inflation is good for the American people. But ultimately, um, what energy companies have needed um, and Max Gagliardi um, actually tweeted about this, uh, I think yesterday, the day before, um, energy companies are begging for higher energy costs, um, a lower uh, interest rates, right? So that way they can borrow, they can alleviate these concerns and they can get supply moving again. Um, and then ultimately gas prices will come down. And what is the Fed doing? They're putting out all these mandates to, uh, you know, the, basically price controls to, to artificially try to keep prices lower while trying to restrict access to capital and slow inflation. And um, I, I have a Bloomberg terminal on my computer because uh, at my school, uh, they give them out to students and I call Bloomberg support and I tricked them into thinking that I was one of the administrators from the school. So I got it installed on my computer. Um, and yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's uh, one of the best plays of all time. Um, <laughs> and so you're looking at it right now, um, you know, crude oil futures are, are through the roof. Uh, the, the, the price of, of energy is expected to go up around the board. And when you're in a regime where these companies that need to uh, alleviate these supply chain issues don't have access to capital, it's going to get worse, right? And so they're going to continue manipulating the CPI basket to remove energy, to remove the cost of housing, because that's how they trick the American people uh, and, and the world into thinking that prices are going down, when in reality, what you need to live, the prices are going up. If I can summarize, I think what you're saying is fuck the Fed. Is that? That would be, in the most eloquent terms, that would be the way uh, I describe it, yeah. Okay, I just wanted to confirm. Got it, we're on the same page. I'd just like to point out that like, the cost of an Arizona iced tea, the cost of a hot dog at Costco, certain things have more price stability than, sure, Bitcoin, the US dollar, the stock market, Price of gas, price of milk and eggs, even some some um, unnamed uh, stable coins. We won't mention them here. I was, getting, <laughs> I was definitely getting there. Um, why? I guess firstly, before we get into the lunacy, see what I did there of what's been going on on those markets. Um, what impact does you know this rising inflation then have to do with Bitcoin? How is it being? How is it impacting the price of Bitcoin? How is it impacting? impacting Bitcoiners besides if and when they go and actually interact with those markets. For sure. So, you know, inflation is rising, but it's slowing. Um, ultimately, we're in an environment where the Fed's tightening access to credit interbank and then ultimately 
it tightens access to credit for the consumer and the average business. Uh, I got to stop holding this this bang energy cup. I'm drinking way too much of it. Um, and so, as it stands, the Bitcoin price is going to hurt in the in the near term because you know people have to pay down their borrowing, and especially for variable rate borrowers, uh, as interest rates increase, they'll have to remove their liquidity from somewhere in order to pay down those debts. Uh, and Bitcoin is a 24-7-365 liquid market. Um, and so they're going to extract some of the liquidity from Bitcoin, which is a really silly idea for those who understand it. But ultimately, um, not many do. They're just in it for the price action uh, to, to pay down uh, you know, their, their, their debt servicing payments uh, economy-wide. And so as interest rates continue to increase, Bitcoin stands to lose, right? Because it's, it's short volatility in the short term. That's how it's traded, even though it's a long vol asset because it's infinitely scarce people cap their uh you know park their money there and so yeah bitcoin, bitcoin stands to lose in the short term um as liquidity conditions worsen but then when it it it, it, it impacts the world globally at a level where the fed can no longer ignore it they're going to pivot uh and and resume printing um so this slowing inflation isn't necessarily good for bitcoin and other assets that are traded like risk on in the short term um but ultimately you know five year ten year time frame uh, people are going to you know, want to opt out of the hyperinflationary collapse of the U.S. dollar, which is what's necessary to keep global markets afloat, uh, and they're going to park it in Bitcoin. I'm of the belief, not financial advice. Don't worry, Joe. You're still note. only a college senior. You're not worth enough money for someone to come after you to sue. That's I just made a note in my, uh, my notes, definitely financial advice. I want to, because there's something about human psychology that I think will help us maybe make a more educated guess. Um, and where I'm going with this is the idea that, you know, the price of gas is felt by some, but not everyone equally. The price of milk going up is felt by most, but not everyone equally. So I want to go around. I'll even go so far as to say, like, I'll start to share, like, what's one good or service in general, where if the price of it starts to go up, that really starts to impact, you know, your day-to-day to a degree, or just, you know, have an overall negative effect on your life. And in turn, what is that good or service for Jerome Powell, so we can drive the price up of that good or service, and then they will change their stance to be much more dovish. Um, for me, pot, like... There's no reason I should be paying as much as I do already with legalized weed in California. And if those prices start going up for due to fertilizer, due to increased rent, due to more legislative efforts, like I'm going to be yist. And for Jerome Powell, I'd probably say something with gluten. He looks like a Chex Mix kind of guy. So I'm just going to say wheat. Because I'm never going to let the idea that the wheat shortage will be the downfall of our modern society this show. I pass the mic to Joe. One quick comment on the wheat shortage. If anything, that'll mean that cows are going to get fed with more grass, which is a win for regenerative agriculture and healthy beef. Uh, healthy beef. Uh, but anyway, um, for me, it would be. Uh, it would be wait, wait, why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't they get form, uh, fed with more corn? That's like massively subsidized oh, already. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it, it, that makes sense. You, now that you point that out. Yeah, I mean, wheat, corn, soybean, they all stand to lose in the future. I'll probably crack open this free Bloomberg terminal and take a look at commodities after this and see where we're, where we're headed. Uh, I'll probably include that uh, on this, this week's report. Um, but hey, cows have ruminant digestive systems. Um, they, can, uh, they, can, you know, they can eat 
this bad food and still it's, it's better for you than any other meat. So I'll stop talking about cows there. Um, but for me, it would be uh, rent. So right now I am rooming with three other guys uh, up in VT and uh, the rents for next year's tenants is going up by $150, which is bonkers. So right now uh, we're paying $750 for rent and next uh, year's tenants, which are coming in June 1st, uh, they're going to have to pay $900 for rent, which is bananas because this is a college town, right? Uh, the people who are renting these places are college students. Um, and so ultimately what's going to happen um, when these college students who are guaranteed loads by the government now have higher interest payments and higher rent? Uh, it's, it's not going to be good. Um, thankfully for me, I'll tilt the camera temporarily. I have, a, uh, I have a miner going over there uh, in the background. You can see nice hash running in the GPU miner. So I'm offsetting the cost of rent um, by mining altcoins and converting it into Bitcoin. Um, but for people who aren't, that's going to be bad. Uh, people who don't own financial assets, um, these uh, price increases, these rent increases are going to be bad. For Jerome Powell, I think um, the, the price increase of hair plugs is going to really hurt him. Yeah, I'll hop in here. Uh, Joe, I'll actually counter it. I mean, to we mentioned it earlier, the Federal Reserve or the government backs student loans. They're just going to start lumping in the loans that you can take for going towards housing. So I think this only just worsens the problem. Like, oh, like housing went up another 150 bucks. Let's just call it another 1200 bucks that is required for your living situation for the year uh, or whatever it is on top of whatever you were already taking out. You can take out an extra two grand, an extra 1200, whatever it may, may be, but uh, it's only just going to exacerbate uh, people getting further and further into debt. Uh, I guess things that I'm looking out for, I know Q is big on wheat. I know everyone's looking at energy. Um, I think, you know, price of beef is naturally going to go up. I think they're going to try and push the soy meats. I think Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger and all these different things are going to have quote unquote good years because everything else gets more expensive. And then the marketing campaign goes out like, buy this stuff, it tastes exactly like beef, but they're just selling you like, uh, you, you guys are, we all, uh, or actually Joe, I won't speak for you, but I know me, Q and P, we all like SpongeBob was in our era. And uh, you know, when they have the fake Krabby Patties that have like the sludge falling out of it, that's like basically what they're trying. Like that was the joke back in the day, but that's actually what's coming for us. So I'll, I'll pass it over to, uh, to P or Q. Uh, I'll jump in. One thing, this is a very unpopular opinion, especially given like made, uh, you know, even more unpopular by movies and shows like Snow Crash, but insect based protein is, or can be super high quality. I think that we are going to live in a future where you just have your house. It's just full of insects. They're just flying around, biting you, giving you welts, like crawling into your ears at night. And then you just harvest them. You milk them. You milk their little insect teats and you get insect milk. And then you also get just a high quality source of protein. And you don't actually have to eat anymore because they just crawl into your mouth while you're sleeping. And then you're just getting that extra protein at all times. So I'm just going to throw that out there. Like I'm a huge fan of uh, the insect swarm inside the house. I think um, the thing for me that would, uh, that I would feel the most, that's a tough one, actually. Um, I would probably say, I mean, food prices, that's the thing that I spend the most money on probably, um, or it's the thing that is like the most recurring thing, but also energy. The problem is that a lot of the stuff is so heavily subsidized. So I, again, I, I don't actually think that, I think that the government and the powers that be will spend a lot of effort to minimize the perceived quality or the, the perceived um, 
intensity of these increases. You know, I mentioned corn earlier. Uh, corn is extremely heavily subsidized. I think the government is again, they're they're just they're just gonna keep the party going as long as they possibly can. Um, and they will manipulate it. But I think I think food prices are probably the thing that the most people, the most Americans are gonna feel are gonna feel the most extremely. Um, and myself included. And specifically, I think insect milk. I drink a lot of insect milk. I think, uh, uh, you know, that's the thing I would feel most. I think in terms of uh, Jerome Powell, I think as he, you know, greases up everybody's assholes, uh, you know, for the fisting that he's uh, delivering to the American public, I think it's probably going to be like oil-based lube. I think that's the thing that he would uh, feel the increase in price in the most. I think that's the and only this way. This is the part of the conversation where we were talking about feeding cows pot. Can we go back to that part of the conversation? Look, you asked the um, question. I just answer them as I, I can, man. I'm just. I'm going to learn. I got to learn. Just straight facts. Um, I also want to pause for a moment and like maybe expose myself for having only lived in like cities. But Joe, are you saying you guys pay 750 together or each? Each, each. If it was 750 together, we'd be living in a tent. Which is I what was a lot about of- to have a heart attack and text my girlfriend that we are moving to Vermont. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I have uh, it's seven fifty each. It, it'd be it'd be a hell of a deal, but I don't know where you'd be living if it was seven fifty for everyone. No, that uh, okay. Um, I mean, look, all of these are valid. I mean, what we're bearing witness to in Bitcoin, in these stablecoin markets, shitcoin markets, in the public markets. We haven't really been talking about the housing market. And, and I mean, we can spend some time now on actually talking about Bitcoin on the Bitcoin show, or we can talk a little bit about housing if, Joe, you have the appetite to go down that path for a brief moment. Because I think it, you want to do that or you want to go Bitcoin? I'm putting it on the spot while you're drinking a bang energy. Yeah, I got, I got to stop drinking these things. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not by any means an expert in housing. Um, so, uh, so I'd be, I think it'd be better suited to talk about Bitcoin. Let's do that then. Um, let's go, Chris. Can we go to, I believe it's slide three with the Bitcoin and S&P 500 correlation. You know, my favorite thing is to always bug everyone about the correlation with the NASDAQ. Uh, Dylan LeClaire has been very good about posting updates on correlation with the NASDAQ 100 and Bitcoin on a 30-day trailing sort of price uh, window. Joe, walk us through sort of what you're seeing with the correlation between Bitcoin and the S&P 500. For sure. So, so Dylan's right to uh, track the Bitcoin uh, correlation to the NASDAQ, because obviously the NASDAQ is more heavily weighted towards, uh, you know, tech stocks, larger, larger tech-related companies. Um, you know, Dylan is, uh, Dylan is a master at doing things like that. The reason I did uh, S&P 500 correlation is because right now what you're seeing is like, market-wide poor liquidity conditions. And uh, the S&P 500, because it's not weighted as heavily towards uh, those, those really indebted tech stocks, um, this gives you a better picture of, of what Bitcoin is, is, is tracking the entire market like. And so right now, um, thing I want to point out with the Bitcoin S&P 500 correlation, people are like, why is, why is Bitcoin going down? Why is Bitcoin going down? Um, well, ultimately, the people with the money are the people who dictate Bitcoin short-term price. Right, uh, these these huge pools of liquidity, whether it be you know, uh, you know hedge funds or, or, or large banks that take up uh, you know big positions in this to hedge risk, um, you know they're the ones running the show here. And so, like I mentioned, Bitcoin being a 24/7-365 liquid market, um, as the S&P 500 sells off uh, over the weekend, uh, these exact same people may have to sell some of their Bitcoin in order to uh, make up for some of their lost positions uh, in other areas. And so, uh, Bitcoin gets hurt too. 
Michael Saylor put out a tweet. Uh, I don't know if it was earlier this morning. I saw it on his Instagram. Um, and it was uh, something along the lines of, I'm going to butcher this, but in the long run or in the short run, the people who understand Bitcoin, um, you know, they, they don't control the price. Um, but in the long run, they're the people who are going to make the money, right? Because where have you at, where you have these institutional allocators who are buying and selling Bitcoin um, because they're heavily levered and they need to cover their positions. Um, and you're seeing it right now where Bitcoin is more correlated than ever to the markets. Um, but us plebs, you know, on this call and, and people who are listening, uh, continue stacking irregardless of, of, of macro conditions. And so in the long run, we're going to be rewarded because we're buying at these levels, right? We're going to be rewarding because we're, we're sitting and waiting uh, and, and accumulating. Um, and in the long run, uh, we're going to be the ones that, that make the money, right? So a lot of what you're seeing now is just, you know, institutional allocators running the show, uh, selling their Bitcoin positions. Um, you saw some of it with the Luna Foundation Guard, which I'm sure we'll get into. Uh, but yeah, ultimately macro is running the show right now. Um, me, me doing uh, what I do on Twitter, I just, I, I, I try to help people understand because VIX obviously tracks market-wide uncertainty. VIX is channeling upwards. There's a lot of uncertainty and, and in Bitcoin, there's uncertainty too. And I just want to help people try to understand what's going on, right? We don't have the liquidity to dictate markets and, and make things happen and push the price up. Um, all we can do is continue stacking and understand what's going on, right? So I want to try to help people um, find a little bit of calm in the eye of the storm. Um, that's essentially what's happening right now. So I want to highlight, though, like the importance of this correlation with the S&P 500. It goes beyond just the tech side of the NASDAQ because you have companies outside of tech being represented within the S&P 500 that is expressing this correlation with an asset class that while is viewed as a tech asset is now showing its sort of correlation and its value as an indicator for what people falsely claim is the general economy. Um, just, I wanna really emphasize that point before we dive deeper into just the Bitcoin stuff. P and Chris, I don't know what your thoughts are on just this correlation you guys are seeing now with the S&P 500. I mean, I don't have it. <laughs> I, was say, I don't have anything material to add, but I'll talk anyway. Um, I think I think Joe nailed it. I, I think everything is tied together because in this environment, the majority of people are um, viewing Bitcoin as just another asset that they are shifting value between. And when you're in that position, um, you're just constant. You know, you're you're you're, you're making. Uh, uh, determinations based on the immediate uh, the immediate situation you're in or the the medium term versus all of us who are making these decisions based on our views about Bitcoin that you know that there will only ever be 21 million that this is pristine collateral and uh, to Joe's point I think we are the ones that uh, will have all that value in the long term and in the medium term but in the short term um, things tend to slosh around and move together just as everything does. Yeah, I'll just, I'll add on to that. I mean, I'm class of 2020 when it comes for stacking class for Bitcoin. Uh, so I'm more of a, a newer Bitcoiner. That's Joe's class is what he's saying or mouthing as well. Um, I, I like to learn from the people that are uh, more, I guess, OGs or legacy investors. I think the class of 2017 has a lot of insights. One of them that I take is, uh, I heard actually Corey Klipstein from Swan saying this 
yesterday on Cafe Bitcoin in the morning that we host and co-host with Swan. He's like, yeah, the class of 2017 sucked when 2018 rolled around and we went up to 19K or whatever and then collapsed down because he's like, so we watched the NASDAQ hit all-time highs, the Dow hit all-time highs, housing market was booming, the bond market, you were in a good position relative to everything else. So he's like, the only thing that was getting punched in the mouth was Bitcoin and you know, ultimately crypto got hurt because Bitcoin runs that that market overall and all the other things are just junk. But um, basically he said, it's like, so imagine being like, yo, no, guys, this is the great asset class. And then all the other investors across all other assets are just kind of flipping you off being like, you guys are idiots. You guys bought your scam coin that they think is Bitcoin, uh, where I guess I'd say this time, I, not that it's easy. It, it sucks like to lose fiat denominated value or nominal value. But when everyone else in the markets are getting punched in the mouth, it really shows the uncertainty. The only thing I'd say is probably still hanging in there is real estate, but you're watching these mortgage rates. I was just talking to someone last night at the, the meetup and they said, yeah, dude, I was like, oh, I looked like last week, it was like 5.1. Rates right now for mortgage rates in, in my area are 5.6%. When like not even a year ago, you could get rates sub three, you could get 2.9. If you wanted to put up a li little bit extra fiat for the loan to buy some points, you can get down to... 2.4, 2.5. So it's just absurd. But right now, everything else is getting punched in the mouth. I mean, real estate's leveling off for sure as rates are hiking up faster than I've ever seen in my life. Um, and yeah, I mean, NASDAQ's down, Dow's down, S&P's down, bond market's crashing, Bitcoin's down. Uh, in in Because of that, crypto markets are down. We're watching Luna blow out. So like, we're not in good times, but you know, I guess it, it's we feel like we're the life raft when everything else is blowing up. And I, uh, you know, my conviction grows every day with learning more and more about Bitcoin. I'll pass it over to Q or Joe. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's definitely very trying times. I think this is when, you know, convicted people will really step out and show their conviction and follow through on it while those less convicted maybe will wait idly by before diving in. Um, the trash is taking itself out. I, I've been putting off having this conversation. I've waited very patiently to ask you about slide number, where is it? Four. Let's talk Luna. We talked a little bit about it just now with what Chris brought up. You know, I was alluding to it when I was bringing up how, you know, hot dog at Costco is still a buck 50, a can of Arizona iced tea is still 99 cents. And Luna, which was supposed to always be one, is now God knows where. Walk us through, Joe, if you don't mind, maybe explaining the, the financial mechanics behind how this was supposed to operate. Can I just jump in real quick? And you know the story about, um, I forget if it was like the co-founder or the CEO of uh, Costco was meeting with like the board or something. And they were like, yeah, I think we're going to have to increase the price of these hot dogs. And he like stood up and he was like, if you increase the price of these hot dogs, I will kill you. <laughs> and we're like, Okay. <laughs> He literally was like, I, you can raise the price on anything else, but a hot dog better not be more than a buck 50. They're taking See, that's, that's the type of leadership we need. Exactly. Um, but the stable coin is, I believe now under 50 cents or just about at that level. Something like that. So, um, so I will, uh, I'll, I'll do sort of a broad overview of this. One of the reasons Bitcoin was created um, following 2000, 2008, obviously there was, you know, development in the broader cryptocurrency space that word has been 
totally trampled on by the thousands of, of alternatives you see that are you know, ultimately just a, a product of easy credit seeking yield. But the reason, one of the reasons Bitcoin was created and one of the things you can do with Bitcoin that you can't do with any other asset other than gold um, is that you, you, you have no counterparty risk if you're holding it on your own, right? Um, and as a result of that, right, it's a check on fractional reserve lending. You can have this asset that people allocate to and if you're holding it in cold storage, guess what? It can't be lent out. Um, so it, it's sort of a check on fractional reserve lending that 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 was sort of you know what caused uh, Armageddon in the financial markets in uh, the 2000s. <laughs> Luna, Luna and Terra, uh, it's totally antithetical to that. Or it's totally antithetical to Bitcoin, right? It is it is maximum counterparty risk. What happened with Luna? Overleveraged lenders got caught with their pants down. That's the simplest way anybody can say it. So. You see these TikTok investors, um, essentially, you know, they, they post up videos of how they get uh, 20% APY. Do you want to know how they can get that crazy yield that you can't find in other financial markets? It's because they're lending out your entire deposit. 100% of it is being lent out, right? And I don't know that for certain, but ultimately, uh, that, that's, ulti that's what causes these huge, uh, the, this huge sell-off. Uh, when there's a run on the bank, right? This, this idea of yield farming is just another way. Uh, it's, it's a fancier way of saying savings account, except with a bank, I tweeted out yesterday, my savings account earns 0.025% yield year on year because they're not lending out the entire thing, right? Because the Federal Reserve is letting them print money into existence and, and, and create dollars through lending. Um, these, these people, these unregistered securities that don't have lending licenses that aren't traditional banks, they're lending out your entire deposit to capture yield. Um, you know, and so this digital bank run that happened where investors you know, withdrew their cash that was actively being lent out, um, that caused Luna to force sell their Bitcoin reserves in order to meet those obligations because it didn't happen even on hand, right? It was all being lent out. And so ultimately, um, you know, Leverage lenders, right? They, they cause liquidity issues when many, many people all at once run to withdraw their deposits. Um, you know, and, and in my opinion, lending 100% of these deposits uh, caused this flash crash. Um, they were forced to liquidate all of their Bitcoin to retain the fact. You can see this chart here. Um, if you flip it, if you flip it horizontally uh, counterclockwise, uh, it actually looks like the, uh, the Chad hair, uh, the, the face of the, uh, the Chad meme. And one thing I'll say, is that um, you know markets like these humble people who think that they're Chad, and that's this is it's, it's just a very funny chart uh, that in four months um, you know this thing completely completely buckled in on itself. Adam Back called this right. Where is this liquidity coming from? It's coming from your 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 printed out of thin air Ponzi tokens, right? Um, you know, so as long as depositors keep depositing and not withdrawing. That's how these yields continue. That's how these returns continue. Um, do you want to know what that sounds like? That sounds like a Ponzi scheme, right? As long as you can find more people to lend to you and you can lend, uh, you can lend to others, right? It's fantastic. The music doesn't stop. Everybody loves their 20% yields. But as soon as any negative catalyst happens, right, and there's a run on the digital bank, there's a run on Luna, and people rush to withdraw their assets, uh, Luna is forced to sell off all of their Bitcoin reserves in order to meet those obligations. And uh-oh, all of a sudden, Terra loses its peg. Luna goes from, you know, crashes 96%. Um, that's what you see, right? Ultimately, lending at many multiples beyond your reserves does this, right?
and that's my understanding of it. Uh, I won't claim to be an expert, um, but this is the, 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 the idiocy behind fractional reserve lending, right? Uh, the music doesn't stop as long as people keep depositing, right? So you can continue lending out and providing these obscene, unrealistic returns. Um, and that's why it's so important to get your Bitcoin off exchanges or they can do the exact same thing to you. I have Do Kwan's thread that he posted essentially issuing sort of what the plan is going forward. Um, more or less without diving into too many details of it, explaining that there's probably some more unwinding to be done, but the algorithm itself should eventually correct. How much credibility do you think is left within that project? Do you think it's more, it's going to go to zero? Uh, and what effect does that have then on Bitcoin overall? That's a great question. Dennis Porter said this uh, two days ago on Spaces and he tweeted it out and I, I couldn't be more, yeah, I, I couldn't uh, agree more with, with what he said. It's that this, this situation of this Ponzi company holding Bitcoin and dumping it out of the market, causing this flash crash, um, is going to be a catalyst that Janet Yellen and the boys are going to run with. They're going to run with this as an example of why the market as a whole is speculative and unsafe, right? They're going to run with that. And so ultimately for Bitcoin, like, right, cause they'll bundle in cryptocurrencies with Bitcoin. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's negative in the near term, which is unfortunate, you know, <laughs> but I, I don't, th I, I think the damage to the credibility of Luna and Terra uh, is uh, irreconcilable at this point, because, you know, there's, there's not going to be any bid. Nobody's going to want to say, apart from KSI, I saw KSI tweeted out that he bought 100,000 Luna. So good luck with that, uh, Mr. KSI, if you're watching this. Um, but ultimately, there's there's literally no bid for this thing. Um, it, it just goes to show that, you know, your your 20% yield, ultimately, um, you know, it, it's not going to be able to re be redeemed because as everybody rushes the, rushes the market and demands their money back, um, it's literally not there. Right. And, and it, it caught, and I'm happy that this, this huge deleveraging, uh, all this bad debt and assets getting vaporized from the system happened when Luna only had roughly 80,000 Bitcoin, right? Imagine what would happen if people continued buying this Ponzi stable coin, and then their value of their Bitcoin reserves kept going up and up and up. And then they had to dump a hundred or 120,000 or 200,000 onto the market. And obviously Bitcoin's a relatively healthy market. Plebs like us set limit orders, were able to absorb it. Um, but I'm happy that this experiment of backing a stablecoin with Bitcoin uh, died very quickly. Otherwise, it could have had much more deleterious effects. But for the uh, credibility of Luna, I think it's no longer there. I don't think it's coming back. Two things. Uh, one, I love the band name, Jenny Yellen and the Boys. Uh, and two, the voice, the impression you just did was incredible. Can you just give us a little bit more of that gold content? You know, like, uh, say... Insect milk is a fundamental aspect of the food pyramid and the American economy. Insect milk, you know, it's, it's a fundamental aspect of the food pyramid. That may not have been very, but one thing you can see, uh, I don't know if you guys follow Carney Clemenza on Twitter. If not, I'd highly recommend you do. I did a Klaus Schwab impression uh, and he retweeted it. Um, and I think what I'm going to do in the next couple of days is I'm go going to find some sort of app that lets you face swap. And I'm going to do uh, like a Klaus Schwab uh, sort of uh, video where I do the impression of him. So yes, know. please. Only wear if you wear that like ridiculous outfit looking like a Sith Lord with that like leather, leather, whatever it was that he was wearing at the podium. His robes, iconic.
I want to present a question to everyone and we'll all answer it. I'm going to answer it last this time. And I'll admit like, it's an idea that Udi kind of posted about where he took the counterpoint to Corey's very aggressive attacks over the last 48 hours on Doquan and Tara in particular. But he essentially presents the question of how is what Doquan and what Tara did any different where they issued some sort of a security to then turn around and go buy up Bitcoin with it and essentially got margin called. How is that any different than MicroStrategy issuing bonds to go out and buy more Bitcoin and using their Bitcoin on their balance sheet as leverage and collateral for said bonds or for those loans that they take out? Like, where's the difference here? Are you more comfortable with Sailor because we all just like bow down to Michael Saylor or is there actually logic, rhyme and reason? So I'll hop in here really quick and give my two cents. So in MicroStrategy, you have an actual company that has a service they provide with actual cash flows, right? And so they're fundamentally sound. And in the case of both Terra uh, slash Luna, whatever, and MicroStrategy, um, both of them uh, purchase Bitcoin in order to uh, actually go ahead and uh, put it in their reserves. Uh, with Terra, they did it with uh, with with equity financing, right? And so they 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 went ahead and bought their Bitcoin with with their own money, which um, you know I, I think it might have been wiser to take their Ponzi coin and post it as collateral to get debt financing, because then what you'd be able to do um, is you 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 probably wouldn't have been able to see this huge uh, crazy dynamic of uh, eighty thousand Bitcoin having to be sold onto the open market um, because uh, Luna would have been able to uh, just, just sit and wait and then reaccumulate um, uh, over time. With, with MicroStrategy, uh, I think it's, it's a lot different from the standpoint that, like I mentioned, uh, their company, they're, they're sound, they have cash flows, but also they pursued debt financing, uh, which won't be due uh, until, I'm not entirely sure, 2026, 2028, and, and they have it staggered far out into the future, right? The, the maturity on these bonds is, 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 is extended far out into the future. Uh, and I believe Saylor said yesterday that their, their essential margin call price before they have to post more collateral, of which they have tens of thousands of more Bitcoin to post as collateral in uh, that uh, event happening, uh, is $3,000. So I think what you saw was um, with Luna, somebody trying to sort of be the puppet master and issue tokens out of the open market to get liquidity and buy Bitcoin um, with no fundamental backing behind it no real strategy in the event of getting margin called, except for just pontificating and saying that it couldn't happen. With MicroStrategy, um, you, you have a team, you have somebody who understands it very, very deeply uh, in Michael Saylor, who made sure um, that the levels at which they were borrowing and the rates that they were getting and the, the maturity uh, at which these, uh, these bonds were issued um, was such that they'd have the lowest possible chance of having to sell this Bitcoin uh, if they got margin called. So the, those are my two cents. I think there's a lot more um, intellectual rigor that went behind uh, MicroStrategy's purchase of this Bitcoin then uh, with Luna. P, what are your thoughts? Do you think it's inherently different what Terra and MicroStrategy are doing as far as trying to accumulate Bitcoin? I don't have an intelligent thought about it. I haven't really thought too much about the, the, the specific nuance there, but um, it does very much feel like uh, the Luna Terra acquisition strategy was more nefarious, was more um, duplicitous, um, but unfortunately I don't have, I don't know enough to be able to give a, a really intelligent answer, but I still did. Those were Wasting good words. I, I like both of them. <laughs>
used words in a sentence. I opened my mouth and words came out. Gold star. You're welcome. Yeah, I think uh, I'll add my two sats in. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think it's just like if you're a Ponzi scheme and you're borrowing against that Ponzi scheme to buy more Bitcoin, that's going to unravel a lot faster than if Apple or MicroStrategy or, or any company that I guess has more of their worth, they're generating cash flows, they can push out their debt much further. Uh, I mean, I guess in a way, you know, sailor offering bonds that if they come due and he can't pay them, I forget, uh, Joe might know this better. I didn't really look into the bond offering that much, but I think, is it tied to the equity of the company that if they default, or is it tied to the Bitcoin if they default? Uh, I forget which one it was, Q. I don't know if Q or Joe want to answer that one. For the bond, it was actually the equity of the company. And then for the most recent loan, they used the Bitcoin. So okay. they've actually, like, I don't want to cut you off, but go ahead, keep going. Yeah, so so in that case, I mean, I guess uh, if they default on the first one that they offered or, or one of the first bond offerings, you would get equity of the company. So they default on their payment, which you would hope that they would cover with their cash flows, that they're not already buying Bitcoin, uh, and they would, they would pay the bond back in fiat-denominated debt. If not, the people basically get uh, based on... Uh, I think the way the order book works is the person that has the most debt goes first, and then you go down the debt order. Uh, obviously, if they can't cover all their debt obligations, then they have to file for bankruptcy, and there's a bankruptcy proceedings and all that. I'm sure it's much more than that. And then the most recent one is uh, they're collateralizing their Bitcoin. So if they default on paying that loan back, uh, whether they get margin called and or um, they are not able to pay it, then in that term, they would have to defunct and give some of the Bitcoin that was, I'm assuming, double collateraled or, you know, 50% loan to value. And it's not like they went, like they took all their Bitcoin and leveraged up on it. It was just a small portion uh, relative to it. I think they took uh, 120 million, 100 million, somewhere around that amount, but they have what, 3.1, 4.1 billion in Bitcoin total. Okay, get over to Q or Joe. So I'm going to combine what Joe and what Chris, you guys kind of talked about because it, it is vastly different in my mind because ultimately you have a company that is regulated through the public markets. Like whether or not you agree with regulation, whether or not you agree that the SEC or the Fed or anyone in general knows what they're doing when they put rules and regulations in place and then try to uphold those rules, those guardrails actually help to provide a framework of where expectations can be. And without those expectations being set, I don't think in this attempt to build out the stable coin, like P, you may be able to speak to this, like when you code out something to try to build a website, for example, you try to figure out all of the worst case scenarios. What are like the pain points? Where can this be attacked? Where can this fail? And how can this fail to prevent those? And then you don't necessarily have to worry about like the, the best case scenario. The best case scenario is someone uses it the way it's supposed to be used. And unfortunately, when you create these rules and regulations, you're essentially creating those guardrails against the worst case scenarios. But they didn't do that with Terra. And so as a result, they were so much more focused on how to like, how the upside works, how it's like, this is gonna just like, it's gonna work. And these are the reasons why it's gonna work. Well, you didn't break down why could it fail? And because you didn't think through why it could fail, it failed for those reasons. And ultimately, MicroStrategy still owns property. MicroStrategy still owns software. They have other cash flows coming in. And I hate that argument or that side of the argument 
But we brought up a couple of weeks ago how MicroStrategy is technically right now trading at a discount compared to all of the Bitcoin it has on their, on their balance sheet. And I, I think due in large part, it's just the market volatility, everything's on a drawdown. That's an overcorrection. That's not to say it can't go lower. So I think unfortunately the market is like hiccuped a little bit and I don't buy into this notion that just because they issue debt to go out and buy Bitcoin, MicroStrategy is doing the same thing as Terra. MicroStrategy is playing within a, a, a field and a game that has protections yeah. both for its, itself, its company, and then its shareholders. There's no protection for the people who hold Terra or Luna. You're just a bag holder. So I don't know if anyone wants to add anything to that before we move on. Well said. Cool. So moving on then to now focus more so on Bitcoin and on-chain stuff. Um, I want to first start with the mayor multiple, slide eight, please. And so right now, Joe, I believe, correct from wrong, the mayor multiple is... I don't think I'm reading this right. Can you help me save it and tell me what I'm reading on this chart? Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. So for everyone listening, uh, the mayor multiple is essentially just a way of measuring uh, whether Bitcoin is overbought or oversold on, on longer timeframes. And the timeframe we're talking about is the 200-day moving average. Um, so essentially, uh, the mayor multiple is calculated with the spot price of Bitcoin, uh, which is hovering at 21,000, uh, with the 200-day moving average. Uh, and so as of right now, uh, we're cresting a mayor multiple of 0.8, right? So the mayor multiple being 0.8 um, and uh, Bitcoin, that, that essentially means that Bitcoin spot price is lower than the 200 day moving average, right? So, so what does that tell you? Well, um, we just talked about the uncertain macro backdrop. We just talked about how Bitcoin uh, is being sold to, uh, you know, uh, essentially cover margin calls or, or post collateral or whatever in other areas of the financial markets. Um, and, and so Bitcoin is, is being sold off pretty precipitously right now, right, relative to, to its 200-day moving average. And uh, one thing I'll say is that um, Bitcoin has, you can see on this chart, um, we, we flirted with that uh, 0.8 lower oscillator. Um, to make it easier, you can just take a look at the, at the very bottom. Uh, I know the oscillators map against the price up top. There are a lot of moving lines, but uh, you can just think of the pink line as uh, overbought and the green line as oversold. We've been flirting with that 0.8 oscillator for, uh, for uh, quite some time now, or I should say level oscillators relative to price. And uh, every time we've dropped below that level, uh, there's been a pretty great generational buying opportunity. I don't know who coined the phrase, I've heard it from Dylan, uh, generational buying opportunity, but um, ultimately in huge sell-offs, when everybody's running around screaming, panicking with their head, heads cut off, you can take advantage of the fact that based on the mayor multiple, uh, we're, we're relatively oversold right now, right? Um, and, and that's justified because of tightening liquidity and market conditions where uh, bad debt assets are getting vaporized out of the hands of lenders. Um, but also you can take this as an opportunity to say, I'm gonna stack corn at these cheap prices, right? Every time we've dropped below this oscillator, you've had the, the ability um, for, in the case of 2018 and 2019, um, for, for a decent portion of a year, right? To stack corn. Uh, in the case of the 2020 flash crash, like 30 days right, to, to stack that cheap corn before, before we ran up. Um, and uh, funnily enough, each of these also sort of coincide with when the Fed chooses to pivot, with, which when, with when the Fed chooses to, to slam rates back down to zero. Um, so in a way, if we're connecting all of these, these, these big moving pieces, you could see the mayor multiple dropping below 0.8 
as a signal uh, that the wider market in terms of liquidity deterioration is, uh, is, is really reaching a breaking point uh, and the Fed may not be able to get those nine hikes in that it wanted to, might not be able to tighten credit as much as it wants to. Um, so, so I'd be very much uh, excited to stack at these levels as we get more blood uh, before the Fed pivots and then uh, we resume number go up. And so I'm genuinely curious your thoughts, like I'm putting you on the spot. I recognize that with this question. I've been a little concerned that a lesson we haven't really learned recently in Bitcoin, uh, as far as it concerns oscillators, is when things look overbought or oversold, they could still be more overbought and more oversold. So I'm genuinely curious if there's now a second sort of indicator that you're coupling this with. Like, that's what I like to use in stocks. Like, I won't just use one indicator. Um, I'm curious if there's another one that you're paying attention to as well. Obviously, the mayor multiple is telling us, like, right now is the time to buy. Um, but in all honesty, it's not actually telling you this is the bottom. It's just saying, hey, price for, for the value of what it's trading at relative to what it's trading at historically, this is a great opportunity. That's exactly right. Checkmate says this, um, the, the, the lead analyst over at Glassnode, which is the, the obviously the platform I'm using for, for on-chain data. Um, oh gosh, I think, uh, <laughs> wait a minute, hold on. Did he say this? I, I, I totally lost my train of thought there. Um, oh, no, 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 I, I, know, I know what he's talking. So here's where I wanna go with this. So these, these indicators, because of the way that on-chain works, you could look back through the entire history of, of the, the, every single Bitcoin transaction, the entire blockchain, take a look at UTXOs, and you can make these uh, indicators based off of that, right? So looking in the past, you can see that, hey, when we got to really overbought levels, Bitcoin's price dropped. When we got to really oversold levels uh, and we eventually bottomed out, Bitcoin's price increased. Um, and so you know, these on-chain indicators became visible to the public uh, around 2018, 2019. So now that they're visible, people might be trading against these indicators. They might, everybody might be using these indicators um, in order to trade. And because of that, um, it's sort of, uh, you know, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. And over time, as these indicators proliferate, they mean less and less. And so you're absolutely right to say, just because something happens, uh, doesn't mean it'll happen again. Right. Um, that is the biggest fallacy in the history of financial markets um, that, oh, the good times are rolling. It's 1927. Let's continue uh, dumping our money into the stock market at multiples that are well beyond the actual val uh, uh, you know, uh, valuations of these companies. And it's the same thing here. We see Bitcoin is relatively, I say relative because it's relative to the last 200 days, oversold. You're exactly right when you say doesn't mean we can't fall further. Right. And in my opinion, we will fall very much further. Uh, you know, we, we're about to see some real blood uh, in financial markets. And uh, sure, these indicators can be back tested, uh, but it's not as if they're the be all end all. Um, and so ultimately, uh, the more cogs you understand in the wider market, the better you'll be able to position yourself. Um, but uh, ultimately, these are just predictors. Who knows what's going to happen uh, against all the mayor multiple means is against the 200 day moving average. The spot price is lower than it doesn't necessarily mean we can fall further. Um, because, uh, you know, again, people have this expectation that what has happened will continue to happen and it's almost never right. So. Um, I'm curious if we can now move up one slide to the realized price. 
Um, talk to us a little bit because we had Sam Rule come on on Monday and he had shared sort of the realized price hovering around $24,000 could be sort of a, a, a level of support down below once we break below 30K. Um, first, talk to us a little bit like what is realized price and then what you're seeing in this chart. For sure. So realized price is essentially, um, you know, you, you can think of it as the price at which uh, UTXOs were last moved. Um, it, the translation of that would be, it's just the average cost basis of all coins on chain. So you can think of uh, in aggregate divided by the amount of supply, this is the price at which, you know, coins were purchased average, right? Uh, and right now it's at $24,500. And so you can see this as sort of a, a level of support um, as on average, the network approaches its purchase price, people are more inclined uh, to, to buy at that level. Um, and as we dip below that average purchase price, you can see historically, um, we've, we've spent very little time underneath it because as people are underwater, some people capitulate, but some people uh, also see it as a crazy buying opportunity. So that's why realized price um, serves as something like a floor uh, because it being the average price at which, you know, coins on the network were purchased, uh, people are more comfortable to say, okay, uh, I'm going to buy at this level, right? Um, and, and I feel realized price uh, is, uh, is potentially a good indicator for that. You know, we, we could fall through, um, uh, you know, the, the, the floor, because again, um, this is simply an indicator. It's not a be all end all definitive thing. Um, but as of right now, you know, uh, I, I'd be taking a look at this and, and lending some credence to it. I find this multi or uh, this uh, indicator absolutely fascinating because it's uh, obviously this is this is an exponential uh, graph, right? Um, and it's moving sort of like a stepwise function through time, right? Um, so it, it essentially removes all of the volatility, right? It's very very beautiful looking at it like this. Um, you you talk about signal um, and uh, you know and and noise, right? The difference between those two. I feel noise is the intraday volatility. Traders who look at the one-hour time frame uh, and don't zoom out and realize price is essentially bunching these UTXOs together um, and saying, "Hey, take a look. This is what everybody purchased at. Right? Chill out. Uh, on a, on a long time frame, number go up." Um, so I would also say that this is uh, you know a pretty definitive support level. Mitch Klee tweeted out while we were uh, just talking here that um, he showed Bitcoin's volatility through time, um, and I'd encourage people to go follow Mitch. Um, but through time, as the liquidity in the market deepens, uh, volatility has been going down precipitously, right? Because, you know, the, that sell side can get absorbed much more effectively when there are more people willing to purchase, right? The deeper the liquidity is, the less volatile it will be. You have people like Peter Schiff who re regularly attack Bitcoin for its violent upswings and its violent downswings and me, 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 gold. I love yellow rock. But this realized price and the idea that Bitcoin's market cap is you know, increasing into infinity as it absorbs these overvalued equities, as it absorbs these negative yielding bonds, uh, as it absorbs the, 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 the time and energy of people who can't save in their hyperinflationary currencies abroad, um, then volatility decreases and realized price is a beautiful way of visualizing that. So long and the short of it, uh, I, I say things uh, in a very uh, absurdly long way, uh, realized price is a pretty good floor. Um, I mean, look, I will say this, looking at this chart makes my stomach churn a little bit. Like this implies that we have a lot more downside to go. Not only can we very safely break the realized price level, but we can still go well below that. And Bitcoin can be acting as it has historically speaking. Um, 
I'm curious how much weight, if any, we need to put on like realized price, however, being a true area of support, just through my initial look through of this, ever since this period in 2015, where it looked like it was an area of resistance for some time, literally right above the A and the first S. After that, it doesn't look like we really traded with or alongside, maybe like slightly above or slightly below. Joe, you're snickering at me. So what what are you thinking? Oh no, I'm not. I'm just uh, I'm just emoting as we go along. But uh, what I will say is that um, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, there there is potential to go well below this. Um, and what I'll say is ultimately, like there's no resistance and support exist, but all they are are indicative of market participant psychology. If you drop below your cost basis, if you drop below that that line of your cost basis, you're more inclined to buy, uh, you know, or or you're more inclined to sell, right? Um, and depending on the psychology of participants, um, that varies. And same deal with when you're well above your realized price. You feel like what's happening is going to continue. And so you buy, buy, buy. And then all of a sudden you're too overheated and you have that reversion to the mean. So ultimately, like looking at this, this is just an, an on-chain in general is just a way to assess buyer behavior uh, and, you know, overall market sentiment based on how coins are trading, you know, historically. And so in 2015, 26, we talked about 2016, 2017, 2018. Um, that's when the Fed and into 2019, that's when the Fed uh, began their rate height cycle. And early on, it was fine. The market was reacting fine. Bad debt was getting purged from the system. But over time, uh, you saw that uh, those debt servicing costs expand a little bit too much. And then the, the entire market got, got a little bit hurt. Um, you know, and then obviously, as they started decreasing again, housing did well, equities did well, Bitcoin didn't do well. Um, and that's a function of not a whole lot of liquidity in Bitcoin. Um, so I wouldn't lend any credence to any particular on-chain metric. Um, if the Fed continues hiking and continues being really hawkish with their tightening, we have way more room to fall, right? And I wouldn't say that realized price is a comfortable floor at all. Uh, you know, we could even, we could fall even well below the, the last cycle top, right? In 2017, we have the ability to fall below 21,000. Um, it's, it's all really a matter of, um, you know, the, the way that the Fed decides to move, whether they decide to pivot and expand access to credit because they realize it's not going to fight structural inflation to, to halt demand, um, or they keep on going and then asset prices, including Bitcoin, get hurt. And in that case, we could fall below, well below realized price. P, what are your thoughts on all this astrology that's been circulating for the last few minutes? You fucking bears. <laughs> No, I think that um, that it, it it's all super interesting to me. I I think it's almost impossible to predict what's going on. I find a lot of the analysis to be super interesting. I think it uh, it has the potential to inform decisions that are made, but I think a lot of it, to be honest, is is reading the tea leaves. Now, maybe that's just because I'm terrible at doing it. Um, but I think a lot of the, I, I'm, I am continually fascinated by on-chain metrics um, and you know things like realized price because to me, they represent a, a solid anchor into what's going on. It's impossible to predict as you get, you know, as just saying with any certainty what's going to happen, but I think they can provide interesting um, 
I don't even want to say pointers, but frames of reference to interpret the the action that we're seeing. I, I said I was going to school to become a, uh, a a finance guy, an economics guy, study macro. But more and more, I get into on chain. The more and more uh, I become more of a market psychologist, because uh, that's ultimately what. No, it is. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're no, I say no. Oh my god, my degree. That, I mean, and part of that for me is like it's frustrating to me. I want everything to be based in like logic and like, here's like here, but nothing is of course we're humans. We are emotional creatures that make decisions based on emotion. And uh, as much as I like to make fun of like, you know, like the fact that like the term animal spirits is an actual term that people talk about when they're talking about the markets, like the animal spirits are scared. They're angry, you know, like they're strong, they're weak. And I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? But um, I can't wait to take Pete to New York and make him rub the bull's balls. Oh, I'm so down. So down. I'll sign them um, and then immediately get arrested. But yeah, I think it's all, it's all grist for the mill. You know, it affects uh, how people, other people make decisions and thus that affects the market price and thus that affects the reality. There's a way of yeah, market behavior quantitatively, which is, I guess, what we're doing here. Then there's also a way of assessing market behavior um, more. Uh, I don't even know the adjective to use, but you saw, I can't remember who it was. Um, but somebody was using like literal astrology just to predict how the market would move. And it was accurate like four or five times. So ultimately, like, you know, it, it's all human behavior. We're all emotional beings. You know, uh, if we were all perfectly rational, we would see realized price and say, you know, oh, the, this is the average cost basis of all coins on chain. This means people are going to buy at this level. But ultimately, that's that's not what it means. Um, I, I wish it was that way as well. But uh in a way, I guess to, to find the, uh, the the fun side of this, it's more exciting. So, yeah, and also I will say, like, if that was the reality, then there would not be opportunities for information arbitrage, like, or rather, there would be far far less of them, and they'd be more concrete. I mean, there is a lot of, as you said, fun and excitement in trying to understand, um, you know, how things are going to go and profit. I do think it's worth noting, like Joe. Uh, Sorry to be the bearer of bad news about this, but like as you spend more time learning, understanding, and studying financial markets, what you come to realize is everything about financial markets is really just understanding human psychology. Um, and it really, everything is rooted in human psychology. It's why I love technical analysis, not as like a tea leaves forecasting method, but more just like to help set expectations. Um, so I would, I would caveat and say these things are helpful for expectation setting so long as you're not using it as the letter of the law and kind of understanding the psychological principles that go behind certain things like price movement, like why there's such thing as support, overhead supply, like understanding the psychology of what a flat base is and a cup with handle for those who like actually spend time looking at a stock chart and look for chart patterns, like helps you better understand what what is a more val viable chart pattern versus others um and again it's not about oh this chart pattern guarantees this type of a, a return it's more of a hey these are expectations and you can sort of fountain it down to say like hey i'm like 75% sure this is sort of a range that we can expect i'm like 60% sure it's here and then like 20% sure this is going to happen uh, yes i know those numbers did not add up to 100% but that's fine because again, we're talking about human psychology here. This isn't based in logic. Percentages are a tool of the man to keep us all down. So we got to break free of our shackles. Trolling me, but again, like to explain it from a like 
truly analytical statistic, like understanding it's each of these events is independent. Like if I think a, a stock is 70%, 70% likely to go up $10 a share, that doesn't mean that it's likeliness of going up only 5% is impacted by those other odds. That's now independent event. So each of these possibilities has its own percentage out of hundred. So it is all, it is P I know you said it's not, but it is actually all rooted in logic. If you know what you're doing. I will buy your, your, uh, your Bitcoin at these low prices. <laughs> <laughs> same, same. Um, but I do want to go to sort of a more traditional understood thing, like the thing that made sense to me, which was supply and demand and based on supply and demand, why Bitcoin will succeed. Supply, 21 million. We all know that. We know that to be true. And what is demand? Um, and people have a variety of ways of calculating this, whether it's open wallet addresses, whether it's active users, whether it's the daily active volume or, or total number of transactions on Bitcoin, whatever that is different people like to use it joe you actually have a very interesting one in my opinion with slide number nine of addresses with a balance of more than 0.01 btc so more than one percent of a bitcoin 10 million satoshis um firstly why why this versus just general wallet for sure so um i think this is a very very valuable metric to follow when it comes to like tuning out as much of the noise as you possibly can and understanding adoption, um, this is probably the best you can get. Now, I, the reason I picked 0.01 uh, was a bit arbitrary. It's because uh, yesterday it hit an all-time high of 10 million addresses. Never hit that before. And so uh, as of yesterday, um, it, it, it was able to hit that, right? So the, the amount of uh, unique, not unique entities, but addresses uh, with a balance of uh, at or over 0.1 BTC uh, is 10 million. And so non-zero balance addresses, such as addresses in general, are, are they also are at around 41 million. Um, but ultimately, the reason I put this up here was because we've talked for an hour and uh, 36 minutes, roughly, about the idea that the macro environment is going to, to, to shit and that central banking, ultimately, their solution will, will, will be to uh, ease uh, liquidity conditions, allow people to borrow, and, and really, ultimately, hyperinflate uh, the currency into infinity. For the layman who doesn't own any financial assets, uh, they need to park their wealth somewhere where it's definitive, right? Where they, where they don't have counterparty risk. Their, their, their reserves aren't getting lent out. They have no dilution risk. Their proportion of the terminal supply, 21 million, it's always going to be there. So they are placing their trust in infinite scarcity, right? Over time, as liquidity in the network deepens, it's a vote of confidence that regardless of the uncertain macro backdrop, people are, are voting with their dollars to park it in infinite scarcity. With, with overvalued equities, equities that are trading at many, many multiples to their actual earnings, right? As these things uh, continue to lose value day in, day out, people are going to begin questioning, why is this happening? They're going to understand lending dynamics. And wait a minute, you're telling me that dollars are lent into existence? You're telling me that these companies have borrowed at 0%? and we're investing in these purely as speculative vehicles, I'm gonna park my wealth in infinite scarcity. That's where I'm gonna place my trust, right? People whose bond yields, right, across all maturity, across all duration, they're earning a negative yield, right? CPI is running hotter and hotter, right? And it's slowed by 0.2%, but regardless, they, they've got negative yields, right? Their coupon is non-existent, 
right? Their pars deteriorating as people sell this thing off, right? And so what are they gonna do? They're gonna place their trust in infinite scarcity. And so the reason I put this up um, is just to show that, you know, a lot of people will debate, well, when is Bitcoin gonna be successful? When is it gonna you know, really reach escape velocity? Um, we've reached escape velocity. We have, um, you know, uh, I think price action driven by macro foolishness simply doesn't bear that truth yet, right? It doesn't, it doesn't showcase clearly uh, that, that Bitcoin is the apex asset. Um, and I use this uh, translation from my Italians. It's, it's a very porous piece of bread, infinitely porous piece of bread that's soaking up all of the fiat that is olive oil. Um, and there's infinite amounts of olive oil that the waiter is gonna keep bringing out. And this, this bread can keep soaking it up. Um, price action doesn't reflect that this is the apex asset yet. So like P was saying, take advantage of this imperfect information, right? You know, while prices are still this low, while it hasn't absorbed all of the, uh, you know, all of the asset value in the world, uh, take advantage of that. As of right now, uh, 10 million people have to the tune of at least 0.1 BTC and it's only going to climb. So why, why 0.01 and not something more like the, I think it's like 267,000 Satoshis, that would be the equivalent distribution of 21 million Bitcoin to 8 billion people. Um, why this point? 0.01 versus something like that. It was uh, just an arbitrary decision. I was scrolling, I was ripping through the uh, the glass note charts, and I saw, wait a minute, this just hit 10 million. So I feel like the visual of uh, a line going up and to the right would be the easiest for most people to uh, to digest and understand. Got it. I mean, P, what are your initial thoughts on? I I buy into this idea that you know wallet addresses and more users coming onto Bitcoin, more people holding Bitcoin, is what's actually driving uh, demand. I don't know if you maybe think something else drives demand though. Uh, my intuition is that it does as well. I mean, I think it's, I know that the glass node has some pretty advanced heuristics for figuring out like what is a new user versus just a, uh, you know, a, um, a heuristic or a hierarchically deterministic wallet address. But my intuition is that it's new users, uh, you know, coming into the network. See, I would have used one of those more advanced metrics where you could see like unique entities uh, in order to like actually evaluate unique user adoption. Um, but I, uh, I don't have the capital to pay 700 bucks a month for the, the premium plan. So here we are, tier two. You couldn't figure out a way for your school to pay for that class nodes sub? Yeah. Hey, maybe what I could do is I could, uh, I could install the Bloomberg terminal on a virtual machine on my computer and then sell that at a discount to an actual Bloomberg terminal to somebody who wants it, then use Mad that time. money to pay for Glassnode because trading view is cheaper. There you fucking go. And we just lost our, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to, one last slide I want to go over, slide number five, Bitcoin exchange net flows. Um, we're talking a lot about these wallets opening, but we're also seeing an influx of Bitcoin on, and I believe leaving exchanges, if I'm reading this correctly. Uh, coming on to exchanges. Coming on. So people are dumping their Bitcoin then. So when it comes to uh, people, uh, basically we've seen 78,000 Bitcoin of net exchange inflows over the last two days. Um, so that's just a common, it's, it's just the difference of like who's winning uh, people who are putting their Bitcoin on exchanges, which is the green, people who are taking them off, which is the red. Um, and uh, lo and behold, Do Kwan and the, the Luna squad, they dumped 80K Bitcoin, um, you know, with a market maker in order to uh, buy fiat uh, and, 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 and retain that peg. Um, and uh, so, so you've seen 78,000 Bitcoin of net exchange inflows. So you see the power 
uh, of, of people converting their Bitcoin to cash when they're this huge uh, holder like Doquan. So they dumped it onto the market, converted it to dollars. This is actually the third largest uh, daily inflow wick of all time. I didn't zoom out all the way. I wanted to keep it more, uh, more, le more granular, less granular. Not entirely sure the bang energy is wearing off, um, but it's the third largest daily inflow wick of all time. And so uh, we haven't seen this much inflow since the, uh, the March 2020 uh, flash crash, as you can see there. Uh, and it's funny that what caused this amount of inflows was another flash crash, but it wasn't Bitcoin. It was this Ponzi coin. Um, and so I, I actually put a lot of weight on uh, uh, a liquid supply, which I don't actually have the ability to take a look at, but supply that's, um, or, or excuse me, a supply that's uh, off exchanges, so like exchanges flow, or uh, money flowing off exchanges, Bitcoin flowing off exchanges. Um, and uh, as of right now, uh, now I'm considering, wait a minute, that metric might not have uh, a whole lot of weight because we see that, uh, you know, just as quickly uh, as money can be extracted from exchanges and held in cold storage, it can be put right back onto exchanges and liquidated uh, into dollars. So I, if I'm reading this chart correctly, then that means if Luna was not doing this, we would actually see this in the red signaling that more people are sending their Bitcoin off of exchanges, correct? Because they liquidated 80,000 Bitcoin, I would say that, yeah, we, we would see this in the red. Um, I, don't, I don't know how, how large or slight that would be because you've also got right. other people in response putting their Bitcoin on exchange. But yeah, per, you know, conceivably we'd be in the red, yeah. No, I think it's really important for us to like hammer this point home about how much of an impact these like big movers really can have on even just Bitcoin on-chain analysis uh, metrics, but broader metrics as well. Like you brought up earlier, and I fully believe and buy into the reason we see correlation in Bitcoin versus the public markets is it's just being treated like an asset class by money managers that don't necessarily have to have a fund in public markets. They can be a private market fund that requires a quarter of a million dollars to buy into it or something like that. And then they can treat Bitcoin as an asset class in that portfolio. And what do they do? They shed and they sell or they buy and it moves the price alongside these other assets. And so I want to present a question to you, Joe. I don't know if you had a chance to answer when we were on the spaces the other day. Um, but what direction do you think will cause the most, what from here in Bitcoin price will be the most pain, cause the most pain? For sure. So I actually, I, I pulled up my notes because I actually wrote an answer down for this uh, that I was expecting. Uh, ba -ba -ba. Okay. So what I wrote was liquidity is being drawn from the system, right? Liquidity is, is getting destroyed. Um, and, and Bitcoin is no exception, right? I mentioned the, the 24 seven, three, six, five aspect of Bitcoin being a market that you can draw liquidity from at any time. And so as VIX spikes, as uncertainty spikes and liquidity gets destroyed, then that's going to mean um, there's gonna be increased velocity to the upside and the downside, right? For, for any change. I think in the near term, the most pain can be caused, and this is actually something I didn't talk about. The most pain can be caused by the downside. Um, Bybit right now, the amount of longs on Bybit, uh, all time high. And so what happens if the, the Bitcoin price due to macro conditions continues to fall, which I'm of the belief that it will, uh, then those longs have to unwind their positions and sell. And so even more velocity to the downside. And so I think because of that, uh, there, there's a lot of sentiment from people who are solely focused on Bitcoin price action that, ah, this is a floor, I'm gonna go long here. 
but they don't know that we can fall even further because of macro conditions. And so as those longs have to unwind their positions and sell, then I think uh, we, we have more pain, more velocity felt to the downside because of liquidity and also those, those longs having to uh, unwind their positions. Is there a way where, just like we took out Do Kwan, but Sailor is still holding, I will allow people like the Winklevi to survive, but how do we then sacrifice someone like Novogratz and make him feel pain on his back? P. I mean, I think he's already feeling the pain. I mean, he did just get a tattoo uh, of a screaming wolf and said he was a lunatic. I mean, that is something you can't take back. Well, you can take it back, and he'll have to. You, you met. He'll have to feel more pain in getting it removed. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Maximum pain initiated. Um, Joe, before we wrap things up, is there anything we haven't had a chance to touch on with you before we uh, cut to a quick commercial break? For sure. Um, for me, not a whole lot. I mean, we didn't go over net realized profit loss, but. All you need to know, um, $3.6,000 worth of coins uh, were sold at a loss over the last two days. Um, and we talk a lot about uh, sellers within the wider market having to capitulate their Bitcoin holdings in order to cover themselves. Um, and so, uh, you know, the idea of Bitcoin as a vehicle for emergency liquidity holds up, right? You know, Bitcoin uh, is, is ultimately going to be the, the first to fall because of the fact that it's 24-7, 365. But because of that same characteristic, uh, once credit eases, I feel like it will be the first uh, to rebound. So basically, all this chart is showing is that uh, people are selling their coins at a loss, um, partially Luna. Um, but ultimately, uh, you know, macros running the show. I believe that as we tighten, this could get worse. People could reaccumulate at these levels. I have no idea. I just put these charts up. Uh, so hopefully I could uh, explain it uh, better for people. But yeah, thank you guys for having me on the show. Uh, I had a, uh, had a total blast. Great having you, man. Thanks for coming on, Joe. Pleasure having you here. Where can our audience stay up to date with you and how your finals end up going? <laughs> Absolutely. So you'll know how my finals end up going uh, tomorrow at uh, 845 when I wrap them up. I'm officially no longer a student at that point. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Joe Consorti. Uh, I, uh, I, I post stuff about uh, everything markets, um, on-chain mining, derivatives, uh, macro trends, financial markets. So uh, you can find me there. I have a question for you before you jump off. I think that I don't think anyone would deny that your facility with the markets, with this information that you're um, that we've been talking about today, is remarkable. And I'm curious, what you um, what do you ascribe that your proficiency in this arena to? Like, do you have specific habits that have served you really well? Do you feel like your brain is just huge because you know you got hit on the head like Life of Pi style, and you have like a little piece of your brain coming out of the back? Like, what's if you're if you're being very self-reflective, what type of thing do you uh, do you think allows you to to succeed in the way that you are, and absorb all this information, and then come to some pretty interesting conclusions? For sure. So I, I appreciate it, P. I appreciate that um that that a whole lot. I, for one thing, I have a whole lot to learn, but I think one of the things that has allowed me to um, really just sit down and, and work to absorb and understand all this stuff because I still have a very long way to go. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to have platforms like this where I can talk publicly and people can find things that aren't correct or help me fill gaps in my understanding. The characteristic I think has allowed me to succeed is uh, a very low level of risk aversion. It would have been very easy for me this la these last <laughs> you know, uh, 
in nine months while I've been wrapping up my senior year uh, and overloading on credits, taking 21 credits instead of 15 to focus entirely on school and, and, and make sure I get fantastic grades in all my classes because having that piece of paper, having those credentials, it would allow me to succeed further down the line. But I think having a low level of risk aversion, just having no, no qualms with spending a lot of time diving into these things and also just posting up my thoughts before I'm, you know, before I work for somebody, while I, while I, you know, I'm still searching for work, I think waiting for, waiting for somebody to, you know, uh, you know, employ uh, me as an analyst or in whatever position before I start posting my thoughts would be, uh, would be a bad idea. Um, I think that the best way to, to learn and understand these things is to create, uh, is to, is to go out, post threads, post your thoughts, um, and, uh, and really just keep your head held high while doing it. I think, I, I, I was able to get this sort of ability because I used to be the this most scared person you could ever meet uh, in middle school. Um, you know, wasn't the greatest time for me. Uh, you know, I was uh, a bit of an outcast, what have you. Um, in college, I decided to run uh, a small painting company of my own. Um, I wanted to see if I had the ability to take on an outsized amount of risk and succeed. And um, after two years, I, I was able to, I did 340 some odd thousand dollars in revenue. And because of that, I figured, okay, if I can bet on myself, oh, if I can bet on myself and do well, then I may as well put the chips back in on the table. And I figured- Wait, sorry, this was in high school? A uh, college. So the last two, uh, two summers. Wow. And so I figured, you know, if, if I can- if I can bet on myself and win, I may as well just keep throwing all the chips back on the table. And I thought this space has a much higher skill ceiling than painting. And so I took those characteristics I learned and developed from, from doing that and, and being able to run a business on your own into this. And so day in, day out, if the results are coming in, if the results are not coming in, um, I just you know stay focused, no problem taking on a, a, an outsized amount of risk. And I love it. I love it. I love what I'm doing. Uh, I love interacting with uh, with all the people on Bitcoin Twitter. Love uh, cruising the markets and learning. I think it's interesting something you just said. You know, focusing on on the risk aspect because one of the things that, that a lot of people say when they're talking about Bitcoin, uh, I certainly was not like I, I didn't learn about Bitcoin until 2016, 2017. And I think that when people look at people who you know quote unquote got in early and they're like, oh, it's it's not fair. Like you you got lucky. You struck it rich. And I think it's always important to to Acknowledge like, no, that was fucking brutal. Like being in a situation where everybody was like, you fucking idiot, like magic internet money, this is garbage. And like every major news outlet was like, Bitcoin is trash. Like to take that risk was a significant one and people reap the rewards from taking those risks. And I think it's interesting because you are effectively doing a similar thing now. You're taking a risk with the, the only thing in my mind that is most that is more precious than Bitcoin, which is your time. And you're successfully managing that risk of your own time and you are reaping those rewards in the same way that people who got into Bitcoin very early did as well. And I highlight that because I think that there are always opportunities for people as of like right now to invest in themselves and in uh, things related to Bitcoin that have the same effect. Like don't accept that like, oh, you are just where you are because that's your lot in life. Like take risks, figure out how to manage those risks effectively as you have, Joe, and excel. I fully think that within a year, um, you know, we're not even gonna be able to get you on this uh, this podcast because you'll be managing just an astronomical amount of money and it'll be disgusting. I'll be like, I can't. It's just the ROI is too poor to talk to you guys for 90 minutes because 
my time is worth a thousand dollars a minute. There'll be some shit like that. Um, anyway, I appreciate so if it. You big time me, I'm going to smack you. I, I will, I will not, I, I won't forget. I won't forget. Uh, but I, I, that's, that's extraordinarily humbling. I, I appreciate you saying that Pete, you know, there were, you know, I, I could have, <laughs> you know, running, running a, running a business, like it, it entirely being on your shoulders. Um, you know, I had the ability to, to, to lose money, um, as a, as a college student that needed to pay a certain amount of student loans every month, but there, there's some level of just ignoring that um, and, and continuing forward. Um, and I, I promise anybody who's listening, uh, you'll reap the benefits. Um, if you don't see them in front of you immediately, um, they, they will come. There were days uh, where I would wake up at, you know, like uh, 4 a.m. I'd go help power wash a house on one side of the state. And then I need to go interact with the customer on the other side of the state. And then, you know, I was losing money on one job and then, you know, uh, all of these different things going on at once. You wouldn't get home until, you know, uh, midnight or one or 2 a.m. And then you'd have to do it again. But um, there's a lot uh, to be said in this community about about proof of work and just putting your head down and and doing stuff as opposed to just staying the course and getting traditional credentials. So um, I, I really do appreciate you saying that. Uh, you know, I still, I still go to parties and functions and, and hang out with all of my painters still down in Boston. So, uh, we'll absolutely not, uh, not, uh, forget anybody. Love that. And just as a reminder to everyone, tickets for Bitcoin 2023 are on sale now. Be sure to get your tickets before prices go up. Joe, I know you were able to make your way down in Miami. Uh, any message for everyone to convince them to come join us next year for Bitcoin 23? Yes, it is an extraordinary opportunity. Uh, if you're looking to break into the Bitcoin space, and, uh, you know, get a get a job in Bitcoin, um, or or meet the people who you know make it all happen. Uh, you know, on Bitcoin Twitter, uh, meet some of the uh, you know most intelligent people in the space. Uh, this is the place to be. Not sure where the location will be, but I'm sure it'll be fantastic um, on Miami Beach. Uh, it was sensational. Uh, it's a very fun time, uh, not only from a networking standpoint, but also getting to see uh, some of these people speak live, uh, shake some of these people's hands. Uh, really, it is the the place to be. Um, you know, it is the the uh, the the apex conference uh, in terms of Bitcoin. So, absolutely, get your tickets now while they're on sale. Uh, you're in Bitcoin because you have load time preference. So, have some load time preference here to uh, purchase your tickets early before they go up in value. <laughs>